you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. So in verse 39, Luke says this. He says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, just for our information, that's a journey of about 100 miles. So Mary makes this journey, a rather long one. We're not told if anybody goes with her. We would assume she's a young teenage girl. We would assume that she didn't go alone. This is not exactly a time in which young girls would travel alone, especially for an overnight travel such such as that one. So perhaps Joseph went with her, perhaps some of her parents, maybe some family went with her. So she goes to this town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now we know that Elizabeth has received news that she has conceived in her old age by way of Zechariah, who was visited by Gabriel. But nowhere in the story are we, are we told that Mary has been told that. So we're not sure how it is that Mary has known to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth. Maybe she's just making the trip to, to visit. Um, maybe she has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to make this visit to Elizabeth. But she comes here to the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now remember, we talked last week about the age of Mary. We're not sure exactly what that age was. But we know that the average age of a young girl who was betrothed to be married in this culture was 12. So she may have been a little bit younger than that, not much older than that. So we're going to assume that she's about 12. Now, Elizabeth, just to kind of get a picture in, my, in our minds of what this meeting sort of looked like. Elizabeth, remember, we're told that she's old. In fact, that was Zechariah's whole surprise when he was given the word that she's going to conceive. He's like... But she's really old. And so she's beyond childbearing years. Now, that could mean that she's perhaps 50-ish, 60-ish, something like that. <coughs> However, I think that we would probably be led to believe that she's older than that. Sarah, by the way, gave birth when she was 75. And clearly in the story, the whole story, the fact that Elizabeth has conceived is seen as miraculous. So it would make sense to me that Elizabeth would be perhaps well beyond childbearing years. Perhaps she's in her 70s. And so imagine this meeting of the two cousins. Don't have in your mind this picture of a girl in her young 20s and her cousin in her early to mid-30s meeting together to just talk of their common pregnancy. Have in your mind a picture of a teenage girl meeting with someone who could be her grandmother. And they're both pregnant at the same time with their first child. Just a little bit weird, wouldn't you say? That here's this 12-year-old meeting, and this Elizabeth possibly could be her great-grandmother, but she could at least be her grandmother in age. And they're together, they're, they're both pregnant with their first child. They have so much to talk about. You ladies that have um, had children, you, I'm sure that you remember very well the whole pregnancies and 
Um, in fact, you're remembering yours as we speak, right? Um, but you remember the first one. The first pregnancy is kind of that, isn't it sort of the special one? Not that any child is any more special than another one, but the first pregnancy, isn't that the one in which everything's new? You've never experienced this before. And you get together with your friends who are experiencing this at the same time or maybe recently experienced it and you have so much to talk about, you know, what's happening to your hair and what's happening to your skin and what this is like and what that's like and all, all the things that go along with carrying a life in your body. And so certainly Elizabeth and Mary have all of that to talk about. But they have much, much more than that to talk about. Because Elizabeth and Mary... As they come together, they represent, they represent two very godly women chosen by God to play a significant role, not just significant, very significant, highly significant role in redemption history and salvation history. Both of these ladies have been chosen by God to bear in their bodies a one who plays such an incredible role in the salvation of mankind. Mary, obviously, is bearing in her body the Messiah. But Elizabeth is bearing in her body John, who is the forerunner of the Messiah, who must come before Messiah can come, who announces his arrival. He is the Elijah to announce the arrival of Messiah. The two ladies share between them two... I think we can say the two highest honors of any ladies in, in history. Here they come together and they have such so much in common to talk to each other about. They are both godly women who believed the promise of God in, the, in spite of all the irrational non-possibilities of what Gabriel had to say to them. They are the ones who believed in spite of the odds, in spite of the realities. They believed God and they've been chosen by God to bear such significance in His kingdom. And here they come together for a period of about three months to, to commune together, to encourage and talk and to just glory in what God is doing in them and through them. So I think one of the things to notice as we think about this, again, the age difference is significant. But we were given no hint of any any sort of awkwardness at all. We, we can imagine it in our mind and we can think that might be a little bit awkward. We're given no hint of any awkwardness whatsoever. Reminds us, I think, of the truth that do you know that the gospel has no generation gaps? There, there are no generational gaps in the gospel. You know what I mean when I say generation gaps? It's just this, this reality that people of di different generations just sort of, well, they don't mesh together necessarily as smoothly as people from the same generation. That's just reality. That's just fact. People from different generations, there's always a generational gap. And so when you think about your relationships with people in your life that are of a different generation, there, there's whether that generation is older than you or younger than you, there's always that thing between you called a generation gap. That's not just a, a modern phenomenon. We think, well, yeah, that's probably a product of the fact that this the, the young generation today is the, you know, that's the, the iPhone generation and 
my generation will, we're the generation that first discovered desktop computers. And the generation before mine, they were the generation that I think they still use abacuses for a while. So we think, well, the modern times have sort of added to this and fueled it. And it's, it's always been this way. I sort of chuckle when I read, I think it was Socrates. I sort of chuckle when I read some of the comments that people made in antiquity about younger generations. And you probably heard that that quote. I'm not going to say it verbatim, but it was something to the effect that, you know, the, the, this younger generation is just... They, they just have no respect for their elders. They don't stand up when their elders walk in the room. They talk to them rudely. And we think, oh yeah, that's something that somebody wrote last. And it was, I think, Socrates who wrote that before the time of Jesus. It's always been the case that people of different generations sort of have that generational gap between them. The gospel transcends that. The gospel eliminates that. There is no generational gap between fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Have, have you had the pleasure, the experience of, of knowing someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ, who is of a, of a different generation, and knowing that, that your relationship with them, there is a consistency, there, there is a connection there that doesn't exist in your secular, your non-Christian type relationship. Have you noticed that? That the generational gap between brothers and sisters is gone. I often think of how we allow this sort of a false generation gap to to even get in the way of the gospel. I have experienced a lot of churches, I'm sure you have too, I've I've experienced a lot of churches that sort of fall into the generational gap trap. I've experienced a lot of churches that are old, meaning... We could take the average age of the person connected to that church and and the average age is probably old enough to draw Social Security. And then I've experienced, to a lesser degree, I've experienced young churches in which just the opposite is the case. We could take the average age of of the churchgoer and and maybe the average age, if we eliminate the kids out, out of the equation, the average age might not even be old enough to buy alcohol. And both of those things are missing the truth, the glorious truth, that the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, transcends those generational gaps. I think one of the errors that we often make today, particularly new churches that are trying so hard to reach what you know this next generation, the younger generation, I think we make so many errors by intentionally designing ourselves to appeal to such a narrow group, age group of people. And you probably know what I'm talking about, but oftentimes what we end up with are just, yeah, a lot of young Christians, a lot of young people, but no older ones. And then we make the same mistake on the other side of the coin when our, our, maybe the body of Christ, a particular body of Christ is aging and getting older and they just become non-effective at reaching anyone outside of that generation. Both of those are tremendous mistakes in the body of Christ because Elizabeth and Mary, they show us what we know to be true. That there is no gospel gap. In, there is no generation gap in the gospel. So, verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 41, 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So the baby leaps in her womb from from excitement, from, from joy at coming in proximity to the Messiah. But there's something more that's going on here. This is something that happened only once in all of history. And what is happening here is literally the old covenant meets the new covenant. The old covenant. John, of course, we would call him John the baptizer, John the Baptist. He is the last prophet of the old covenant. And of course, Jesus, he is the new covenant. He ushers in the new, he was the old covenant too, but he ushers in the new covenant. And so when he and John enter the same room, it is literally the old covenant meeting the new covenant. Much like uh, when Jesus was on the mountain transfiguration. Moses and Elijah were there. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and that representing, of course, the law and the prophets, both of which point to Jesus, that their fulfillment is in Jesus. But yes, along the same track. So John and, and, Joe and Jesus come together in the same room Old Covenant meeting together with New Covenant. Now, what was the job of every Old Covenant prophet? They had one message. That message would vary a little bit under different circumstances, but their message was always the same. We are sinful people under the wrath of God, but God is sending Messiah. That was their message. We are sinful people, but God is sending Messiah. Now, think of John. His message as an Old Covenant prophet is, we are sinful people and God is sending Messiah. But he was the one who says, and he's here. And there he is. So that's what he's doing. In the womb, he leaps for joy because the fulfillment of his message is right there. Messiah is coming. He's here. And so what? Uh, his role was like none other. What John had to say was like no one else in history. Messiah is coming, and there he is. And so he leaps for joy at the meeting together of the Old Covenant and the New. And then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She's not the only one. John, she's not the only one. And so is Elizabeth. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Once again, there's a reminder there of what it always looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We talk about being people being filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and depending on what church background you may be from, Sometimes we wonder what that looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we imagine it to look rather weird. But the Scriptures always tell us when someone is filled by the Holy Spirit, there's one thing they do. Speak for Jesus. In every occurrence in which we're told that someone's filled with the Spirit, they have something to say about Jesus. So Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and she has something to say. She exclaims it with this loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. So pause right there and think about the humility of Elizabeth. What she has to say, filled by the Spirit, what she has to say is drawing attention to Mary and, and of course, to Jesus. Now, think if you, were, if you were Elizabeth. Some rather extraordinary things have happened to Elizabeth as well. Elizabeth has lived her entire life from age 12 or so on as a cursed woman, a woman who was barren and cursed in her culture. And in her old age, perhaps in her 70s, she has miraculously conceived. 
as the result in part by a visitation to her husband by the angel Gabriel, who makes exactly two appearances in all of Scripture. And here she is six months pregnant with the miracle baby. She has some rather amazing things to say about herself. And yet, all she wants to talk about is Mary and Jesus, particularly Jesus. You know how it's just true about our fallen nature and that we like to talk about ourselves. Everybody likes to talk about yourself. Sometimes we may be sort of shy about that and um, unassuming about that. But when others talk about us, when the conversation turns to us, there's something within our fallen nature that finds pleasure in that. Mary wants nothing to do with that. Even though she, I mean, Elizabeth wants nothing to do with that. Even though she, right now, stands in a place of just amazing work of God to be the recipient of such a miracle baby. And all she wants to do is exclaim, blessed are you. She's going to say in a minute, the mother of my Lord. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she continues on. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. By the way, this may not look like a poem to you or a song to you because most translations don't break this out in, in song format, but if we were to, to look at the original language and trust the original language scholars, they, they're going to tell us that this is poetic language. This is a song, which makes this the very first Christmas carol, the very first song sung about the coming Jesus. And so she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Again, her humility in removing the attention from herself and placing it on the boy Jesus, on the baby Jesus. She, by the way, of course, is double blessed. Why is this granted to me? She's expressing this humility over this blessing that she's receiving, the blessing of being in the presence of the mother of the Messiah. Of course, she is, is double blessed because in her womb, is the one who proclaims that Messiah is here. But um, her humility here is moving. Her, her quickness to decrease attention on herself and increase attention on someone else, particularly the Messiah. This, as I was thinking through this, of course, one thing that struck me was I think of her son and I think of what he's going to go on to say. And if we think in our minds, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, he had some remarkable things to say. And if we think of what came out of the mouth of John the Baptizer, several things stand out, of course. Um, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We know that was sort of his theme, his mantra. We remember when he said, um, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. But... Isn't the most recognizable statement that John the baptizer made, isn't that, of course, when he said, I must decrease so that he must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. And of course, that, that shows the heart of John the baptizer. It was, a, it was this heart that wanted to glorify Jesus, which is, of course, the heart that we should all have, the heart... God gives us with our new birth. But even with John the baptizer's case, that was, that was something of an extraordinary thing. John the baptizer was not an ordinary person. In fact, 
the words of Jesus himself said, among those born of women, there's nobody greater than this. He was quite an extraordinary person. And yet he was so quick to say, I must decrease, he must increase. If you think about that, that humility had to come from somewhere. Of course, we know that's a work of the Spirit. But it would make sense that 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 type of humility, that type of Messiah-exalting humility was example for him. I think we see the example here. The example was Elizabeth, his mother, who had a heart that wanted to decrease herself and increase Messiah. So continuing on, verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. The the sequence of what's happened here, I think, is, is of a special note to us. Jesus, of course, comes to John. John doesn't come to Jesus. It's Mary who makes the 100-mile one-way trip. It's Jesus who comes to John. And isn't that the way that Messiah comes to everybody? Jesus comes to us. You know that that phrase that we hear all the time, come to Jesus, come to Jesus? Well, to be precise, no one comes to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. And in this instance, his, his mother, even when, when tiny Jesus was only a few weeks old in the womb here, his mother must make this journey to him. If you are in Christ today, then Jesus has made a journey to you. He has journeyed past your pride, past your self-focus. He has journeyed past all of your sin and all of your shortcomings. He has journeyed past all of your pride to come to you. Just like he comes everyone who knows him. He's come to them. But let's focus, of course, for a minute on what, what is naturally the most prominent thing of the passage. The most prominent thing, the thing that sort of leaps off the page, is this leaping of the baby in the womb. The, the John leaps, Mary, or Elizabeth says, for joy. He leaps for joy in the presence of the Messiah. And that, of course, points to the reaction that all of our hearts should have, this joyful reaction to coming into contact, to coming into relationship with Messiah. Because, of course, joy is the emotion of salvation. Joy is not salvation. The two are not equivalent, but joy is the emotion of salvation. And so the reaction that the unborn John has should be the reaction of all of our hearts, this leaping for joy, this, this joyful existence in the presence of Jesus. And you notes, of course, we are told many, many times, for example, 1 Peter 1, verse 8, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So the emotion of salvation is the emotion of joy. The question, of course, always becomes, why do we therefore struggle so much with joy? If joy is the emotion of salvation, and we are saved, we are God's people, why do we struggle so much with joy? And I think that sometimes there can be some reasons for that. I think that there are people that are born with um, personalities, with tendencies, with with 
with brains that just struggle with joy, that just are prone to darkness and prone to dark thoughts and depression. And they, and they have a lifelong struggle with joy. I think that is true. I think that also joy, our joy in the Lord can be inhibited with things like fatigue, lack of sleep, you know, um, young mothers. Okay. Uh, I think that that's easily seen and sometimes in our life that when, you know, when, when we're just overstretched and when we're not getting good rest and when we're over, uh, over responsibilityed, then that can fight with joy. I think that's, that's true sometimes. I think sometimes grief can mute our joy. There are times of grieving in which our joy can become dull somewhat. It was maybe six months ago that your mother passed, Dean. I was trying to remember. Six months? Dean, no, it's been nine months. Nine months? Okay, I thought you were about to say three years. I was like, there's no one. But that time, there's grieving there. Your mother was in Christ. And so there's joy there. You don't, you don't mourn like the world mourns. There's joy in your mourning, but there's also grief there too, right? And sometimes that can inhibit joy. Sometimes I think we, we just recognize that it is the work of the enemy to come and steal joy. And so I think that those things can happen. But I think that if we put all those things together, add them up and take the sum total, I think they would still find that that's the minority of causes or situations or instances in which we as God's people struggle with joy. Am I right? I think that our struggle with joy is bigger than all those things put together. So why is that? Why do we struggle with joy if it is the emotion of salvation? And I think that the Scriptures will teach us very clearly that um, there is one cause for the Christian who has a lack of joy in their life. And I think that that points so consistently and so often to the Christian who has, there's so many ways to put this, the Christian who has one foot in heaven and one foot in this world. One eye on the next life and one eye on this life. The Christian who's invested in heaven and invested here. The Christian who hedges their bets they know and they believe in the eternal promises of God, but let's hedge a little bit of that here. There's so many ways you could put that, but I think that that is the reason why the majority of us as God's people will struggle with consistent, regular joy is the fact that we are seeking pleasure from two sources. We're seeking security and salvation from two sources. One is eternal, one is God, one is Christ, and the other is His creation. And Scripture tells us that that is a recipe for misery. Take a look at, for example, um, uh, Psalm 16, verse 2. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from You. The Christian who is to have consistent joy is the Christian who believes and lives that there is no good apart from God. That there is no good apart from God. 
Because there is no surer way to squander our joy than to have one foot in both worlds. And so to experience joy, the Christian must live and must believe that there is no good apart from God. You are the Lord, my God, you have, or I'm sorry, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Or look at Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or the words of Jesus, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the other things are added to this. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. We could go on and on and on, but the scriptures, I think, are very clear. That God alone is the giver of joy. And to whatever degree that we seek fulfillment and security in things other than God is the degree to which we are miserable people. Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now this doesn't mean what... I think that it's easy when we hear people say that the Christ follower finds joy in God and God alone and recognizes that He alone is good. And mixing our pleasures between God and the world is a recipe for misery. I think it's easy to hear those things and, and think, well, what does that mean that my life is supposed to look like? Is that, does that mean that for me to be happy, that all I can do is just read my Bible and sing hymns? That anything else brings misery? How does that look? I think that the best way I can explain that is it kind of looks like going camping. You know, this world is not our home. You know that to be true. You've heard that phrase so many times in church. This world is not our home. And making this world to be our home really is the same thing as, to put it a different way, as seeking pleasures or security or fulfillment in those things that are not God. Another way to put that is making this world to be our home. And so we struggle with that. How do we, we live here. We've never been to our real home. This is where we live. How is it that we seek our pleasure in God and God alone while not just making the mistake that people have made in history, which is to just try to go off and live on a mountain all by myself and just wait for Jesus to come back for me? And I think that if we can get our minds around the analogy of, of camping, I think that will be helpful for us. You might like to camp. You guys camp. You guys like to camp. After that, we stopped working. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was the worst camp. It's going to take some recovery. It sounds like you did it the trip. right way. Yeah. So when you camped, I take it that you, you know, you did, you don't, you didn't pull this little miniature house behind you. Two men and five kids. And a one, tent? One tent. <laughs> and a two-year-old yelling, how to pee, how to pee. <laughs> like every 14 seconds. <laughs> we, took, we took like a two-hour car ride and turned it into like a seven-hour car ride. <laughs> oh. 
oh, it sounds like y'all's problems are even greater than the text addresses. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when, when you go, when you went on this camping trip, it sounds like that, that you at least have the basics of, of helping this analogy to make sense for you. When you showed up at your camping site, now you had in your vehicle, you had a tent, you had some other accoutrements to go along with that, and you probably spent some time setting that up, putting the tent up, Maybe you sort of cleared the campsite a little bit. Maybe there's some sticks and twigs. You rocks, cleared those away. Rocks, cleared rocks, the rocks, rocks out of the way. Rocks. You, you probably made a spot for fire. Yeah. Or if there was already a spot for fire, maybe you cleaned that out a little bit. You, um, you, you put your sleeping bags out. You unrolled those. You did some things to make your stay there more comfortable. Sounds like you didn't do enough, but you did some things to make your stay there comfortable. Right? Now, what if you had planted a couple of flowers by the little zip door of the tent? Or what if you had, um, before you set the tent up, what if you had just sort of dug out a foundation and poured a little pad of concrete? Next time. Yeah. <laughs> been less expenses. But you would have been a fool. You would be a, you'd be a fool to plant a tree in your tent's front yard. I'm just being glad if we were it was worth it. This this will make our tent more attractive for the other campers walking by. How foolish. So, while it is wise to spend some degree of effort making your short stay comfortable and being prepared for what might happen during your short stay, right? You, you didn't set your tent up uh, two inches above the creek, or you didn't set your tent up underneath a huge broken tree branch, right? You took some precautions. You made some preparations to make your stay there comfortable, but you didn't do things that would have been just foolish for a two or three day stay. But then you left there and you come back home to your home that you have planted some flowers by the door and you have planted some grass and maybe a tree or two and, and you've repaired that broken door and you've, you've painted the garage and all those sorts of things because that is a more permanent place. If we can take that analogy right over into the spiritual realm and understand that this place is not our home and that doesn't mean that we just sort of cast everything into the wind, twiddle our thumbs, and wait for Jesus to show up while we live on welfare. But instead, we do those things that would be wise for living in a place for a short time and refraining from those things that would be unwise when living in a place for a short time. And so the question that, that really helps me to ring true on this, because... What I don't want you to hear is, oh, Jason has all this together. He never, he never has to worry about joy. He always has joy secure in his No. I fight for joy just like you do. My joy comes and goes. It, it waxes and wanes. It grows and fades. And I have that same battle that you have. So that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, in my battle for joy, here's how I see it, and here's the question that really rings true for me. Is what I'm, would what I'm doing make any sense 
if there were no afterlife. If there was nothing after this life, it's what I'm doing. Would that make good sense? Is how I'm spending my money. Would that only make sense if this life is all there is? If I look at my budget, does my budget make sense only in the case that this life is all there is? Is the way I'm raising my children, would that only make sense if this life is all there is? Is the way I spend my time, would that only make sense if this is all that life is? And if the answer is ever, yeah, that's the only way that really makes sense is if this is life is all there is. Then I'm finding my pleasure in something other than God. If the way I spend my time only makes sense, if this life is all there is, then I'm seeking pleasure in God alone. If the way I treat our family's financial resources only makes sense, if this life is all there is, then I am seeking security or pleasure in something other than God. Seeking pleasure and security in God can look like doing some improvements to your house. Just like being a wise camper can look like clearing the sticks out from underneath your, your tent. However, the foolishness comes in when when we do things, or we spend our money, or we put our efforts, or we put our hope and our security in things that only make sense if this life is all that there is. We sort of treat life sometimes with the, the outlook of a financial planner. Anybody ever been to a financial planner? I went to a financial planner for the first time in my life, week before last. And when he got done laughing... Um, what he said to me was what all financiers, financial planners say. You need to diversify. You don't need all your eggs in one basket. You need to spread your eggs out. What robs our joy is when we take that mind frame over into the spiritual realm and say, yes, th these things make sense if there is another life after this one following Christ, being part of a church, being plugged into the body of Christ, that makes sense if there is another life after this one. But then here's this other thing in my life that if there were no afterlife, would still make sense. That's when our eggs have left God's basket and we have begun seeking our pleasure in two places. And there is no surer, more predictable recipe for misery than for a child of God to seek pleasure in something other than God. So, maybe that helps in your battle for joy. John leaps for joy as he comes into the presence of his Messiah. Let me, well, actually, before I move on, let me just read together Psalm 16, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Okay, now we can leave that. Verse 45. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth finishes this Christmas carol, this song sort of that she sings by saying, blessed is she, blessed are you who believe that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I wonder if Zechariah was in the room. I don't know if he was or not. If, if he was, he couldn't speak. Because remember, he's still mute. So what better time for Elizabeth to sort of get her spiritual jabs in than when her husband can't speak? You know, so you can because you can hear it in her tone, can't you? Blessed is she who believed that there is fulfillment for what the Lord has spoken. Not like Hardhead over here. Not like so and so. We're not going to mention any names, but his name starts with Z. Who heard and didn't believe? Right. So you sort of hear that that tone. But blessed is she who hears. And believes. Let me finish by just saying, I think that Elizabeth, were she in the room today, she could say the same exact thing to us. Blessed is he, or blessed is she, who believes that there is fulfillment of what God has spoken. Folks, we are, I don't say this lightly at all, we are, I believe, living at a time like none other. I believe we are living in a time in, in human history that is like no other time. And if you, um, some of you, you have just, maybe just heard me preach a few times. Others, you've heard me for eight years, and you, you can know. I am not sort of, you know, that uh, looking for doomsday, finding prophecy in every newspaper headline, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. I am, that is not me at all. In fact, you've heard me say many, many times, uh, yes, things are bad now, but things have always been bad. Since the garden, things have been bad, right? But I am more and more becoming convinced that, that I, I believe that we are at a time that is like none other. I don't know what is ahead, but I, I, I do sense with my spiritual senses that the best case scenario is we're about to enter a time of great persecution. Possibly what Jesus refers to as the great tribulation. I don't know. But the best case scenario is still rather bleak. I guess depending on how you look at it, bleak or, or hopeful. And so we stand at a time in which the words of Elizabeth, I think, are especially profound to us. Blessed is he or blessed is she who believes what the Lord has spoken. And the Lord has spoken that no good thing does He withhold from His children. That He is our rock. He is our fortress. There is providence and there is deliverance in God and God alone. And everything that God allows into the life of the one who loves Jesus God will work that together for good. And so there is a need for us to be like people whom Elizabeth is talking about. Blessed is he that believes what God has spoken, that there is gain in worldly loss when Christ is in it. Or there is blessing in persecution when the persecution comes caused by Jesus Christ, by His name. Blessed is the one who 
hears that and believes that there is fulfillment for what they have. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.